you know, the finished product for me, seeing the the creative designs that come out of the team, seeing that built environment, and then seeing the Googlers come in every day and, uh, you know, smiles on their faces. I always say that the biggest measure of success is, you know, what percentage of our employees have brought family members into the office to show it off. And to me, that just means there's something special that they want to be part of their extended family. And it's, it's a pretty high conversion rate. So that's what keeps the smile on my face. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Recorded on July 15, today's conversation, our 100th episode, is an interview with David Radcliffe, the head of real estate for Google. This is our first interview with a corporate real estate leader, and it will not be our last. Having the head of real estate for Google as our first foray into corporate real estate on the podcast is kind of like having LeBron as our gateway conversation into basketball. As you can imagine, Google's footprint in real estate is enormous, and the role of its office environments within the company's culture is well known, and as David will discuss, quite conscious. The impact of space users, occupiers in the parlance, whether it be office tenants, retail tenants, or industrial tenants, is huge in our industry, and Google, of course, is among the largest and most influential across the industry. Again, this will be a continued deep dive topic, I hope, on Leading Voices, And again, having David on the show gets that conversation started. Today's show is episode 100 of Leading Voices, a milestone that I could have imagined when we started the podcast with ULI back in 2017. We've interviewed leaders from across the real estate industry, from well-known legends in the business like Gerald Hines, Sam Zell, Art Gensler, and Ron Terwilliger, to CEOs of sector-leading REITs and major owners like Camden Property Trust, Prologist, Host Hotels, Invitation Homes, Taylor Morrison, Digital Realty Trust and Equity Office, to private company owners, to nonprofits, to architects, to planners and city officials. We started these conversations four years ago just focusing in on our guest leadership journeys and then pivoted largely after both COVID and the George Floyd aftermath to spend more of the conversation around our guests' work jamming around the headlines of their business in these particular times, with always still some discussion around their thoughts on leadership and the pathway in their careers. And our last question is always, what is your advice for a young person starting their real estate career? A coda that at some point we will release a best of compilation, maybe for our 120th episode. Anyhow, at this moment of our 100th, I wanna thank all of our previous guests, Our listeners, especially our subscribers, my company, Terra Search Partners, especially my teammates, Ellen Klassen, Ali Sherman, and Jenny Turek, Jeff Large and his team at Come Alive Creative, and my family, especially Diane and Callie, for their patience and constant advice around my obsession for hosting Leading Voices. This has been a project through which I have learned and grown more than I could have imagined. Hopefully the podcast is able to share some of my passion and curiosity that I have for each of these conversations and for the arc of the broader ongoing series for you, the listeners. Again, thank you. As always, please comment back about this episode or the series via our LinkedIn page, ratings on Apple Podcasts, or email me at matt at with ideas or guest suggestions for the next 100. Thank you, David Radcliffe, for joining our podcast today. And I hope that you enjoy the episode. David Radcliffe, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. I am so pleased to have you on the show. 
for our listeners, you're the head of real estate at Google. And also for our listeners, believe it or not, this is the 100th episode of Leading Voices. I can't believe it. And you're there for our centennial guest. But you're also the first guest from corporate real estate, which is a space that we've kind of left out of the conversations. And starting the conversation on corporate real estate with the head of real estate at Google is kind of like, you know, hitting a grand slam or being in the World Series in the first game or something. So um, thank you for doing this. Well, congratulations on uh, podcast number 100 and glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, David, your title is Vice President of Real Estate and Workplace Services and Global Security and Resilience Services at Google. Talk about your job, what that means, and kind of unpack that for us. Yeah, absolutely. So, two separate organizations that really have very much the same mandate, and that is providing services, space, and accommodations for Google to help the company thrive. And so in what we call the Ruse organization, which is the real estate and workplace services, that's your traditional corporate real estate organization. It has the strategic real estate organization, the, the transaction organization, it has the facilities group, the construction group, which does all the interior fit outs. And then it moves into what we call our employee services. So our food team, all the things that Google's kind of known for, our buses, our massage program, our fitness program, all the stuff that kind of made us quirky and, and set the trail on this new employee engagement model that's no so widely adopted around the world. On the uh, GSRS side, that's our, our safety and security organization. So EHS and security, and it's really about keeping Googlers safe and allowing them to come into the environment, you know, and just remove their stresses and know that it's a place that they can uh, trust is, is a great environment to work in every day. Hmm. We'll talk mostly about real estate, but what's the breadth of stuff within safety and security? And did that come post-COVID or did you, was that always kind of combined in a separate, similar organization? Always part of my remit uh, since since starting at Google. And, you know, it's an organization that's obviously growing with Google. In the early days, it was very much about building access. <laughs> and, you know, as Google's growing, as the world has got so much more complicated, the risk team, the threat analysis team is growing with it. And uh, and so have, you know, the, the level and the skill set of folks that we've been able to bring into the organization. Uh-huh. And your organization, of course, is global. So that may have different meanings in other countries than it does in the United States. It does. It does. And it, it can be anything from, you know, I remember a number of years ago, there was a, a volcano that had shut down a number of uh, air traffic routes. And so, you know, making sure from uh, from a security organization, we were able to get people out of the area that they were in. It could be that there is, you know, a protest going on near an office in, in some city and making sure that both the office itself is safe and that the employees can move in and out freely. And so it really just runs the gamut but it's all about the safety and protection of our employees. Got it, got it. And we'll pepper this part of the conversation in as we go through this, I'm sure. Talk about the global real estate footprint, just to get a sense of it. Where is it? How many places? How many square feet? How many employees? And then your organization. Again, we're just trying to understand the breadth of what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've I've been at Google for almost 15 years, so it's certainly changed since uh, the day I started, and it's constantly evolving. So when I talk about the portfolio, I always talk in generalities. It's not because I'm trying to be elusive, but it's because it's constantly changing. Right. And uh, as we speak, we're we're adding more square footage. So Google is about 140,000 employees worldwide. You know, about 85,000 of those folks are in the U.S., and probably 55 to 60 percent of that U.S. population is right here in the Bay Area. 
area from, you know, San Francisco all the way down to San Jose and a number of spots in between. And our real estate footprint, you know, we really plan at around 200 square foot per person. And so our operating portfolio pretty well maps to our headcount around the world. So if you think about 140,000 people, we've got about 30 million square feet we operate out of. We also control about another 10 million square feet that we actually operate as a landlord. And traditionally, that square footage has come from large purchases. So, you know, the one that's top of mind for me is 111.8 in New York. It was one of the largest buildings in New York, one of the largest transactions that was done when we purchased that building. And it was about two-thirds leased up when we bought the building. And Mm so we were the tenant a third of it, and then we became, you know, the owners and the landlord for the rest. Many of those leases we've renewed because they're great tenants and it fits perfectly in the portfolio share. Other will be allowed to roll off and then we've recaptured that space as growth space over time. Uh, and when you buy a building like that, is your goal to have all of it or is your goal an investment real estate owner just because it's there? What's the... No, it's, it's always operational. And so, you know, we have a very, very long-term view. And so it might not be this decade that we're thinking about operating in the building, but certainly when we're out buying real estate, it's with an operating lens. We expect at some point to grow into the building. You know, one of the, the curses, I guess, of being Google is that when we move into a new market, very often there's this huge yield shift and we, we essentially make the market. And so if we're going to go into a new market that we haven't been in before, very often we'll take significant changes chunks of real estate so that we're not having to lease in or buy into a market that we essentially created, but we can get in on that ground floor kind of cost basis. Hmm. And you said you've been there for 15 years. We're going to talk about your career in, in a little bit, but you know, were you like employed? I don't know what was 15 years ago at Google, but we were about 3000 employees when I started. And so we've added a little bit of headcount and square footage since those days. So after having worked in a couple of other companies in corporate real estate, you joined this small company that might be growing. I did. And, you know, we'll we'll talk about later, but I'll give you just a little background on it. In 2004, actually, the then CEO, George Reyes, had approached me about this new role they were opening as a head of of real estate. And he, he talked to me about the opportunity. And at the time, I was just coming out of the PeopleSoft, J.D. Edwards, Oracle, merger and acquisition that that took about two or three years and uh, he was describing the opportunity to me and it was a much smaller company then even than it was in 2006 and i said george you know it's just not not something i'm really interested in i'm really looking for an opportunity to scale <laughs> and uh they they hired a, a different individual unfortunate for me it didn't work out so he called back in 2006 and i had then heard of google i was using google and said you know what i'll come in i'll come in and chat and uh had the opportunity to meet with you know Eric and Larry and Sergey and the entire management team and listen to their vision and and I was sold. Yeah, I bet. And when you listened to their vision, their vision wasn't about real estate. So when they talked about that, that was a vision of growth in general, I think. Did they have a sense of the meaning of real estate within the vision of what Google would become when you talked to them? It wasn't necessarily about real estate, but but Larry and Sergey both had a passion for sustainability. They had a true belief in the built environment contributing to human wealth and health and, and well-being. And they were super focused on just employee engagement and being creative. And so it was that and then thinking about 
you know, my tools of the trade and the real estate itself and what could really be done that just got me super excited. But from day one, it was that passion around well-being, the built environment and health that they they really understood the linkage uh, even back then that, you know, many now just almost think as commonplace, but it wasn't back in the early 2000s. And did you understand the linkage with all, of all of those things when you started? Or was that kind of mind expanding to you as well? I did. I mean, I, I certainly give them credit. They've, they're always ahead of the industry and, and ahead of his common thought. But it was clear to me that there was a huge you know, transformation coming. As they talked about their goals, it, it just became even more clear that it was, something, that was definitely something I wanted to be a part of. Yeah, I bet. And so your bio says that your teams continually scale, evolve, and innovate Google's dynamic workplace environment and services, promote employee health, and drive sustainable solutions for both Google and your broader communities. So kind of talk through a little bit about that, especially with this evolution from 3,000 employees to where it's gone, and then all that you said about what Google is known for in terms of Google buses and massages at the office, whatever they might be. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll start with the fun stuff and the employee per program. And what's so interesting is is it's actually very, very fundamentals and principle-based, everything we do. And so we're always looking at productivity, connectedness, and well-being and everything we do. And, uh, you know, we're often teased about our dogs. And, you know, we're a, we're a dog-friendly environment. And if you've, if you've got a dog, bring it into work as long as it's not offending, you know, one of your, your co-workers. And, and people always thought that was just kind of this quirky thing. But early Really early on, the leadership realized that there were engineers who were always leaving around three or four o'clock every day. And I think it was Larry asked one, like, why, why are you always leaving? You know, we've really got to nail this project and, and kind of keep going. And he said, I've got to go home and let my dog out. You know, and that was the advent of, for instance, that. So, well, bring your dog in. And so it was always about, you know, how do you allow employees to be, you know, productive? How do you take all of those weights off their shoulder that they typically have throughout a day that distracts them from really being as productive as they can? And so that's how that's how the perk program started, even with food and our micro kitchens. We have a number of micro kitchens around around the office. And early on, we were trying to figure out, you know, where was the best place to put those micro kitchens? And we had them where a typical designer would put them over in a corner so that they had these wonderful views. And as we were looking at it, we thought, you know what, maybe we should actually move them internal and let's put them between where the engineers sit in the bathroom. Because the one thing we can be sure about is everyone's going to use the bathroom during a day. And the purpose of the micro kitchens was really to facilitate these spontaneous collaborations, these opportunities for people who otherwise wouldn't come together and share a story, share an idea, maybe work on a, on a whiteboard together. It was these, you know, casual collisions, as we like to call them. And so they were strategically placed around the building. And sure enough, you know, they've almost got a life of their own now. But there was it was it was very purposeful on, on what their intention was. It was to bring people together to share conversations. And the location of those was very intentional as well. Mm -hmm. and, and it's interesting. So think about two ends of maybe the, this isn't the right way to put it but at one side of this is these collaborations that bring people together and that the other side of it is just getting people to work more time and more intense time and it's accomplishing both yeah and it's not even more time it's software engineers in particular will tell you about getting in this flow state so it's uninterrupted time and that's the key it's not necessarily about working long hours but it's when you're in the flow making sure that there aren't distractions that take you out of that flow and that flow may exist from 
seven o'clock at night till two in the morning. It may exist from 10 until two during the day. And so we just want to make sure that we can facilitate that whenever it does occur. Is the audience that you're putting this for together, which, and we're going to come back to work from home concept in a little bit, is that audience are programmers and they're not normal yes. human beings. I don't interact with people like that all the time. So is there something special and unique about how they exist when they're alone and how they exist in a line of people? You know, I wouldn't say unique. They're, they're just incredibly brilliant people. And so their, their minds are always racing at a thousand miles an hour. And they're typically able to see systems as opposed to just individual elements. And that's something I think Google does a great job of even in the hiring process is really making sure that it's not can you solve the problem, but what's the approach you take to the problem? And are you looking at it from a systemic or a systems view? And you'll really be able to then unpack anything that's thrown at you. And so these are lifelong learners. They're people who are always curious, but you know, many times they're also introverted. And so it's helping pull them out of that space to allow them to collaborate with their peers because together they can share so much and they can, they can accomplish so much. It's interesting. Last weekend, we were in Bend for a weekend with friends and we stayed in a new urbanist community and we found the new urbanist community to be absolutely delightful and it found its intended intent for us it manipulated us into saying hello to everyone on their front porch and all these and made us walk around we did all these things we wouldn't have done in a different type of suburban community and it sounds like you really create that kind of environment very consciously it is conscious. And, you know, I would say that they're just simple. They're, they're nudges, maybe. They're mm-hmm. just opportunities and, and people can choose to act within that environment however they choose. But um, we want to make sure that we're, we're creating as many opportunities as possible. Cool. So back to the real estate. Part of what you're doing is you're creating three significant campuses in Silicon Valley. And it's not only office, it's apartments, and maybe you're going to own those as well. So talk about the decision to jump in as a developer at that size and scale, what that means. And also one of your principles was that you affect your community in which you operate. So bring that part into. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, each of those three, we call them districts, each of those three district developments is slightly different in Mountain View, North Bayshore, which is our you know historic headquarters campus, if you will. In that district, we have a number of very small second and third generation buildings. And we know now from 20 years of history that, uh, you know, we operate best in larger floor plates. We operate best in high ceiling height with lots of natural light. There's a whole bunch of different elements that we know make great buildings. And so in North Bayshore, it's actually an opportunity to raise much of that third and fourth generation space and just take that same square footage and collapse it into a smaller square footage, larger floor plates, maybe a couple stories tall, and do a couple things with the extra space that were left over. One is turn the sea of parking lots into a number of green space and green belts, really focus on ecology and you know bringing nature back into, uh, into that business park. And then number three is, and this is both selfish and for the community, is helping to solve the housing crisis that we're all facing in the Bay Area. And so it achieves three very important goals for us. It gets better office product, consolidated so that people are closer together. 
it brings nature into the uh, into the environment so that when you need a break from work you can go out and walk on wonderful hiking trails and or go down to uh, a wetlands and then it brings housing which currently does not exist near our campus and that could be for google employees or it could be for any of the other companies or employees of other companies who live out in that area who just want an opportunity to be able to walk to work and you know not not get on the 101 every day. And so in North Bayshore, I think there's about 7,000 homes that that we can add uh, in that area. And so that's pretty exciting. On the other end of the spectrum is downtown West in San Jose. And that is almost the flip side of that is there is an incredibly vibrant, fun, longstanding neighborhood down there. And, uh, and we're bringing office for the first time. And so what we're really focused on in that development is, you know, stepping back and, and really listening to what did the community want, what did the community need, and how could we be part of the community as we came in. And so, um, you know, we just went through our uh, development agreement with with the city of San Jose in the last few weeks and had that approved and are now looking forward to, you know, getting going on that project. And so that's about that's about going into an existing community, again, adding housing. But what's so unique about that location is Deardon Station, when it's fully done, will probably be the most connected rail station this side of the Mississippi. And so to be able to have, you know, your front door right at that connected hub of rail transit and not be so reliant on on, on highways, as we tend to be here in, in the Bay Area, um, it, it, we think it's just going to be a, a great tool for us to allow employees to live in all different directions, even up in the city, maybe in San Francisco, and have a very assured train ride on Caltrain straight down to the office in 45 minutes every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what's the third one? And then the third one is in Sunnyvale. And so Sunnyvale is, uh, is similar to Mountain View, although it's it's really growth space and so a few years ago as we were starting to fill up in mountain view we realized that you know we really needed to start thinking about where was next and we had thought about san jose but we knew it was a number of years off and so we started buying up and assembling large blocks of space in moffat park and bought about 80 percent of that submarket and, uh, and are now going through a similar process with the city. We're not as far along in the development agreement or, or the master plan, but a similar process. We're taking a number of very old second generation buildings, putting larger, uh, taller office buildings on that, and then uh, open space and bringing housing into the market. Mm-hmm. And so lots of questions that we could spend the rest of the podcast on, but but we won't. Do you think this is the trend away from that second and third generation prior tilt up buildings in Silicon Valley that really housed all of these startups? Do you think it all moves towards that more efficient space over time? Well, I think I think what's really interesting is we've been able to live in both office products over the last, you know, 10 or 15 years. One is the tilt-up office space. And the problem with that office space is smaller floor plates, Mm -hmm. typically not as much access to natural light and the things that we just know actually help um, with cognitive thinking and, and whatnot. But they are typically higher base spaces. And, uh, and we also know, especially in, in the future of work, as we think about people coming together for many more collaborative events and very intentional team meetings and team gatherings, we know that volume matters. And we know that when teams come together, that, that being in space that's you know, much, much higher is, is, is just better for team dynamics. And so 
there is good and bad in that product. If you look at some of the office product that had been historically built, typically center core, which makes a lot of sense if you're a developer because mm -hmm. you don't know if you're going to get a full full floor plate or four quarters or whatever it might be. But for a single occupier, it starts to become fairly restrictive on how you can plan that floor because you really have to just plan in floor quadrants. And they also typically don't have that height in those buildings. And so we were able to see typically what was a, a spec office building, which had the benefits of larger scale, we could get thousands of people perhaps in a, in a building, and the benefits of the old tilt-up, and really our, our our generation of buildings brings the best of both together. And that's that's what we're bringing out of the ground today. Mm -hmm. I, I'm just guessing that more of the old center core buildings go away. It's just, it's just old stuff and it can't be updated to do what it needs to do. Maybe the tilt-up be kind of interesting because you have the high ceilings, but that's it doesn't give you the amount of space that you need. And not just you, right? You and everybody else. Yeah, and that's that's the challenge. It, it works until it doesn't, and then you become fragmented. And so, you know, one of the things that we know with engineers is that we want to give them as many opportunities to evolve from a team perspective without having to move buildings or move cities or move locations. And so large concentrations of teams in the same place is really helpful because they may be working on a project which may span six months or a year, but it may only be two or three weeks. And then that team is disbanded and then a new team is formed with different people. And so having them in close proximity really makes that reformation of teams super easy. Must be huge because also if they're in individual office buildings all over Silicon Valley, then when someone's on one team, they have one commuting pattern, then they have to get into a different commuting pattern and commuting in Silicon Valley sucks. Yeah. Absolutely. And does that also suggest that the urban cores like these three places where you're going to have large districts and San Jose being one of them, do they become rejuvenated by your existence there as well as others saying, hey, there's a there there. We don't need the sprawl that has been Silicon Valley. We think so. I mean, we think and we see that uh, that typically, you know, small firms move nearby when we start and put an anchor someplace. And, it, and it really tech ecosystems tend to build on themselves. And, mm -hmm. and we expect we'll see that happen. Uh -huh. And talk about the environmental view of this. And the next two podcasts we're doing are both on the environment and real estate. So it's August about it's mid-July right now and it's hot. And we've had some climate events this all the time now. So how do you think of that and your both responsibility and your opportunity around that? Yeah. So, you know, this is something that we take very seriously and it's it's a space that Google has been committed to for a number of years. You know, back in 2007, actually, the company committed to being carbon neutral. In 2017, we were actually 100% renewable. And then just uh, in the last six months, we announced even a more audacious goal and that is by 2030 to be 24 seven carbon free. And what that means is, you know, carbon neutrality simply means is, well, let's even say carbon neutral, where we didn't have offsets that we had all renewable. It still meant that at nighttime, we were pulling energy off the dirty grid. And then during the daytime, we were overproducing so that we could basically clean that out. What we're saying going forward is every minute of the day, we are going to be producing clean energy. And so some of that will happen through storage. Much of it will happen through wind. Some of it will happen through you know geothermal energy sources or different sources. But it's 24-7 carbon free, which we think is taking, you know, basically our commitment even to the next level, which is totally becoming independent of that dirty grid. Some of this is off-site. 
some of it's as part of the developments that you're doing. How do you pay for that? How does it happen? What's the marginal additional cost? Talk about that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Back, and get the date wrong, but around 2007, 2008, we put 1.6 megawatts of solar on what was called our Googleplex campus. At the time, it was the largest uh, corporate installation of solar in the country. And uh, and now it, you know, it almost seems insignificant. But I remember everyone said to me, like, boy, like, what? That doesn't make any sense. And how can you ever justify that? You know, it had a payback for about seven years. And so here we are in 2021. You know, it has been producing free energy now for us for seven years. And so if you have that long-term view, renewable makes sense. It always makes sense. And it becomes free, clean energy. And so part of it is having a long-term view. Certainly, you know, we, we, we have shareholders. We have to make sure that the ROI is, is there for anything we do. But it is. I mean, today, that if, if solar just makes sense, I think, for any business. And there's, if you have rooftop space, you really should be using it to, today for that. You know, to your question on some of it's on-site, much of it's not. One of the things that we've really tried to do from an off-site perspective is make sure that we're on the same grid. So we're not going to go put a huge solar farm in South Carolina and say that's offsetting the Bay Area. We're going to put it right here, you know, close to the campus to make sure we can say, hey, you know, we're on the same grid. Mm-hmm. And how do you deal with transportation and the famous Google buses around that? Maybe it's building these campuses, but how do you add that into this? What must be an incredibly complex calculation? Yeah, it is. I mean, right now, the buses are on biodiesel. Uh, we're actually moving to an electric fleet. And so that will be part of this 24 uh, seven carbon free commitment will be the electrification of that fleet. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's actually starting this year with the delivery of our first electric buses. And so it, it's all part of it. And, 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 you know, even taking it further, the steel and the concrete that we use to build buildings, you know, it's one of the one of the biggest uh, culprits of, of carbon in the planet. And so we're making a pivot right now to mass timber. And so we actually have our first mass timber building under construction in Sunnyvale. I'm super proud of that. And, uh, and I've just been amazed, one, how quick it goes up. But two, just the beauty of the structure, and uh, and then and then what it does for for the environment from a long term perspective. So super excited about uh, the potential of mass timber going forward. And again, your cost to play with mass timber versus the current technologies. I guess it's mass timber's a current technology, but the old technologies. What's the mar- Is there a marginal cost difference by the time you do that? There isn't. You know, the mass timber buildings really surprised us. If you try and redesign an existing building and try and put mass timber in after you've gone through the design, yes, there's a premium. But if you start day one and say, we are going to do this out of mass timber, the cost advantages are there in the first instance. And so uh, we're, we're seeing that today, even actually post-pandemic, where we're seeing lumber prices go through the roof, we're still seeing the advantages of, of uh, mass timber over some of the other types of construction. And what role does Sidewalk Labs play in your work? It's an associate affiliated company, but maybe you're part of that too. And explain what that is. So Sidewalk Labs is is our innovation arm, if you will, for the built environment and, uh, and true partners in every sense. Early on, when we were a small Google, we would we would do all that innovation within my team. And a couple of things uh, became very apparent is with the growth of Google, we found that we could never really just stop and think 10 years into the future. We were adding space every Monday morning for right. our growth. And it became very difficult to separate out, you know, how do we really think about 
communities 15 years in the future, as opposed to just five or 10 years, which is our planning horizon. So when we went to the alphabet structure, it was the opportunity to set up this, this separate entity. And that's how Sidewalk evolved, was to really be able to keep their eye on the future and not be distracted by the the realities, the messy realities of developing today and getting stuff done. And so great partner in everything we do. We share an R&D lab. Much of the mass timber work was co-developed actually with Sidewalk Lab because they've been thinking a lot about changing the codes, being able to go much higher than 21 stories and fabrication methodologies on, you know, how do you actually uh, get all this done in a, in a cost-effective way? And so those are the sorts of R&D efforts that we worked on together. Uh-huh. And what large parts of your responsibility and your world of real estate within Google aren't we talking about? What am I missing in these questions? Yeah, you know, it's all built in into what we've talked about. I think, you know, some of the pieces that we've missed when we talked about sustainability is just indoor air quality is, mm-hmm. is one thing that we have spent a lot of time early, early on. We recognize that particulates was one of the major health contaminants that people are subjecting them to self to in, in buildings and we moved to a MERV 13 standard within our office environment. You know, we've since moved to, to MERV 15 and even MERV 17. And then we've also really focused on healthy materials. And so for a material to be used anywhere in our build process, it needs to be VOC free, formaldehyde free. Uh, we've got a whole red list of, of materials or, or ingredients and materials that we simply won't use in our construction. And so early on, it added a cost to, to our delivery because many of those products just simply weren't available. Carpet was one of the ones that was that was most difficult, to be honest, was right. trying to get the, uh, you know, the ingredient list. And, and a number of carpet manufacturers really stepped up and said, let's work together and let's let's try and figure this out and and today we've got a number of different carpets that we can you know put throughout the world at the same price point as what we were using a generation ago so we're coming out of covid what percentage of your workforce was coming to work in the states during the crisis and then what's what's your new policy what's it look like and how do you maintain all of the innovation and community that you've had with whatever this new policy is yeah. So, you know, if we if we step back all the way to March of 2020, so 15 months ago, you know, we were one of the first companies to basically move our entire workforce home. And when we did that, we did a couple of things. One is there were certain uh, roles and certain functions that could only be done on site. And uh, that would be, you know, if you were working in a lab or if you were keeping the Internet up and running and it was, you know, a national issue type thing. Those folks, we need to make sure we provided a very safe, secure, healthy environment for them to be able to come into work every day. And so there was a small, small percentage of folks that came in the whole time. We also early on told all of our employees that. Any return, regardless of when we reopened our office, would be voluntary through September 1st. And so we announced that almost a year ago so that employees knew that if they were in a, in a small apartment in a city somewhere and maybe they were young, they could move back with their, their folks or they could move out to the, to the country or something for a year. They knew they had that latitude. And so we made that commitment to our employees and that was, that was something we did. And, and then we also put a risk curve together where we said, look, depending on you know, what's happening in individual markets from a regulatory perspective, from a number of new cases, hospitalization, all those sorts of things, we would have have a risk curve on one to five, five being the worst, where 
only those people who had to be in the office could be there all the way down to one, which is back to normal. And I don't know if we'll ever get back to normal, but, you know, two being where California is today. And so just this week, actually on Monday, we reopened our California offices to 100% of all employees, but 100% voluntary. And, you know, what we're seeing is, uh, is very consistent with what we've seen in other places where we've opened our offices in Taiwan and Australia, Israel, that about 65, 70% of all employees choose to come into the office at some point during every week which really kind of supports this notion that people are asking for more flexible work styles, but that they really value the interaction with their peers. They really value that opportunity to socialize, to build those connections, to mentor, all those sorts of things that as, you know, as humans that we just crave, but we don't necessarily want to do it all the time. So we knew that would be the case just from serving, and now we're actually seeing that play out. So it's, uh, it's interesting to see. Yeah. So let's go backwards and then forwards. First of all, when March happened last year, how prepared were you to be a leader through this process? Because it must have been, uh uh-oh, all hands on deck right this second. I mean, maybe over a two, three-week period, whatever it was. It seemed like a, a monumental task at the time. It seems easy looking back because, you know, sending everyone home was fairly straightforward because it was linear and it was absolute. Mm-hmm. Bringing everyone back around the world, being that every city, every country is at a different place and making sure that you're consistent, making sure that you have all the protocols and the principles in place is, is much more difficult. You know, the biggest challenge bringing people home was obviously the ergonomics. I'm at a, at a beautiful stand up desk right now, which did not exist in my house, you know, a year ago. And Google was very generous. You know, they gave every employee up to $1,000 that they could expense however they wanted to make their home environment more productive. And so for me, it was a stand-up desk. If you were in a small apartment, maybe in Paris, it might have been an air conditioning unit because you didn't have that in your home and you didn't need it uh, because you never worked there before. And so we did that. We also um, told people, look, On the way out, if you need to take your monitor, you want to take your keyboard, even if you want to take your desk chair, just take it. And so we tried to be as helpful as possible to say, look, you know, the corporate rules say you can't take a monitor out of the building. We said, just take that home because you're going to be more productive with multiple monitors if you're an engineer or something like that. So early on, we we realized that we couldn't be too rigid and that we needed to be flexible and accommodating. And so that was the the mindset. You know, how prepared are you for these things? You... um, you hope you have the right process in place. And for us, it's something we call our incident response team, which is what our global security organization runs for the company. Right. And that would be you know, for any incident. And so it was well established and, and we knew how to pull that team together. And then this is obviously something that none of us had seen before as, a, as an event, but the process was there. And so we kicked it off and became a well-oiled machine over time. Incredible. And so what does the new normal look like? What what do you think stabilized will become? And 60 to 70% choose to come to work. And then you said at some point, which is what that, that feels like right to me as well. But is there a policy? Do you have a sense of how that will stabilize out? Yeah. So we, we announced out to the workforce that we were moving to, you know, like many of our peer group, a hybrid work week, which is uh, roughly three days a week in the office and two days a week at home. We don't have a set three days for the company. 
but what Sundar did was he pushed that that uh, decision making down to his directs. We call them product areas, so the PA. So whether it be Google Cloud or YouTube or search and ads, each one of those are product areas. And so each one of those teams are are going through and saying, okay, you know, is it important for us to be together together? And if so, should we pick maybe two days where we want everyone in, and the third day is up to sub teams, or should we really say, hey, we want mm-hmm. three teams to come together? You know, right now, looking across all the different groups, people seem to be migrating towards a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, um, with Mondays and Fridays being optional. But, you know, I would I would hazard to guess that as we get back into the full swing of that in the fall and in the winter, it will start to change as people realize that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, 101 is going to look like it did right. back in 2019. And I think some teams will say, hey, maybe we should be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and not Thursday, Friday, or things like that. So I think it will evolve over time. Mm-hmm. And how within that do you maintain the sense of collaboration and that magic thing that we talked early on, unless you're sending massages home to people? What's so important about this is is the notion that complete team needs to come together. And so right now, we are not looking at it as a, how do we optimize the five days if you have, you know, 10 people, we're going to have peak times and we're going to have off peak times. And so in the peak times, everyone's together in the office. So the collaboration, the learning, the sharing, it will happen. I think people will be very intentional about what happens on those two or three days that they're in the office. And they'll be selective on, I'm not going to accept this meeting because it's a meeting that can happen either asynchronously or it can happen on on a video device, maybe even better the Mondays and Fridays. And I'm going to save my Wednesday for something else. And it might be for the one-on-one that you and I just want to go and have lunch together and just sit down and, and, and look each other in the eye and talk about a, an issue that, you know, that's been bothering us that we really haven't been able to, to do over video. And so people become more intentional with the way they use those days. And so we think that that collaboration and that, that spirit will continue. I'm going to hazard a guess the way you're talking about it, that things may be better from a collaboration standpoint and a, fl- and a flexibility standpoint, net-net, in two years than they were two years ago. I totally believe it is. I think, you know, a couple of things have happened here. You know, the agency has moved to the employee, which I think is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. But I also think, you know, astute companies are realizing that there are certain things that they need from an employee to be successful as a company. The perfect example I always use is when we look at some of our most senior engineers, they are 20, 30, sometimes even 40% more productive in the measure of lines of code produced and bug fixes and all those sorts of things. But the reason they're so productive is very often is because they're not mentoring or they're not being interrupted by more junior people saying, hey, can you really help me solve this problem? And so then when you look at our most junior people, especially the ones who have maybe just started and just come out of college, they're really struggling. They don't have that network. They don't have that ecosystem. They haven't learned the tricks on on how to get from right. point A to point B. And so, you know, short term, I think it might look like you can be much more productive at home as an organization, but long term, there has to be that mix. And there's certain things the company needs, which is that learning Mm -hmm. that is constantly evolving dynamic. And then the employees just, you know, need some time to focus and that that can happen on those other days. And does all of this change, say, within the state where you have your footprint, does it make it more to have hubs in, say, Austin, which everyone's talking about constantly these days, or other cities, or even co-working spaces in Petaluma, where I am right now, 
where people who live far away still want to see people and be at a co-working space that may only have 10 Googlers or whatever. Yeah, so a couple of thoughts on that. One, we, we were fortunate that we had a fairly geographically diverse footprint already. So we're in 170 cities, uh, 60 countries around the world. Mm -hmm. And so we've already have a presence in just about every city that you can imagine that has a tech ecosystem. One of the things that we didn't have was, I'm going to pick uh, just you know, a PA number one, so product area number one, had a very large concentration in the Bay Area. And then they may have, in a pre-pandemic world, had a concentration in one or two other locations. And they, coming out of the pandemic, will be expanding the number of locations where they have hubs, mm -hmm. but it will be 5, 10, 15, not 170. Because what's important is still that complete teams come together when they're in the office and they're not fragmented. And so when I think about, you know, where do we grow? We will continue to grow everywhere around the world. We are seeing, you know, growth in, we're making a big commitment, for instance, in Atlanta. We announced that before the pandemic and we're continuing to accelerate growth there. We're continuing to accelerate growth in Chicago. We've got a lot of employees in New York and it's just a great market for us outside the US and London and Tel Aviv. So many, many markets, Bangalore, where we where we can find great talent will continue to grow. What we're not necessarily doing right now is this notion of, of spokes, because what you'll find is if you have a team that's working on a particular problem, the chances that they all live north of the Golden Gate Bridge and can actually congregate together in Petaluma is probably not realistic. And so we still wanna bring people together to the hub so that the chances of the interactions are, uh, are multiplied. Got it. Last question in all of this before we spend a few minutes talking about corporate real estate in your career is how do you manage all this? You must have a large organization. And one of my interviews was with the deputy mayor of New York and she had such, you know, she had like 50 departments and managed so much stuff. And the topic was all about the way to manage it was to have the vision around it and keep setting that vision. I don't want to answer the question for you, but with this span of control, how do you keep your head around it? Yeah, it's similar. One, I mean, the and this this is um, almost cliche at this point, but it's hire just amazing people. And then, like you say, set the vision and in, in many respects, get out of the way, but also know when to be helpful. And so we do have a very large organization. There's about 500 Googlers on the, the real estate side and about 500 Googlers on the security side. And then we're supported by you know, almost 25,000 vendor partner people who would show up every day somewhere in our global ecosystem. That's everywhere from the receptionist and the janitors to architects and brokers and, and everyone in between our, our food service team and whatnot. And so it is really about just hiring great folks and, and making sure that you have a very consistent vision and, uh, and then allowing people to innovate and allowing, you know, new ideas to come from anywhere. And when you see them, you know, celebrate them and make sure that you have a system in place that then ports them everywhere else in the world. And likewise, when you see things that aren't working, call it, but don't call it a failure. It's just a, it's a lesson learned and, and move on and try something different. So, Well, it sounds like it's working. Which components of that bring you the most joy, pleasure and pride in what you've been able to do? You know, the finished product for me, seeing the, the creative designs that come out of the team, seeing that built environment, and then seeing the Googlers come in every day and, uh, you know, smiles on their faces. I always say that the biggest measure of success is 
you know, what percentage of our employees have brought family members into the office to show it off? And to me, that just means there's something special that they want to be part of their extended family. And it's a, it's a pretty high conversion rate. So that's what keeps the smile on my face. That's a great component of what that might look like. So we have about 10 more minutes and I always have the same wrap up question. So before we get to that, um, talk about your career in corporate real estate and what got you into this business. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's an interesting question. I don't think anyone, at least in my generation, uh, went into their fourth grade class and said, I wanted to be a corporate real estate executive. So most of us, most of my peer group ended up in corporate real estate just through happenstance. And so I'm a, uh, I'm a civil engineer by training and after school, uh, grew up in, in Ontario and in Canada. And after school, actually, as an intern while I was in college, and then after I graduated, was working for the Canadian government's aircraft services directorate in their facilities group. And uh, it was the group that was responsible for maintaining all of the airports around the country. And so was really enjoying that and uh, decided we were building a couple of very large projects at the time and decided I actually wanted to go into large project cost controls. That's what I decided I wanted to do. So went back and got an MBA uh, with a concentration in real estate and construction management and graduated in 93 when there were no large projects happening uh-huh. really anywhere in the world. While I was in grad school, I worked for a... Uh, an interior spit out firm and was a project manager doing a, a bunch of interior interior work. And then uh, when I graduated, went to work because there were no large projects going on, worked actually for an ERP provider, JD Edwards, who I went mm-hmm. back a number of years later to run their real estate group, but doing ERP installations across the architect engineering and construction organization. And the, the reason I kind of bring all that up in quick fashion is because in a very short period of my career, I became very broad. I had done facilities, I had done construction management, I had done system implementation. And as I was doing that, got a call from a friend of mine who had gone to work for a a tech company called Storage Tech that was based in Louisville, Colorado. And he, he was doing property leasing for them. And he said, Dave, you know, we're hiring someone else and we had been classmates in our MBA class. And he said, why don't you throw your name in the hat? I think you'd be perfect. And I remember saying, Ted, I don't think I've ever done a lease in my life other than, you know, my my sublease for, for grad school. And he said, no, no, no. He said, it's math and, and everything you can do, you'd be perfect at it. And so I went in and uh, and chatted with the team and, and somehow got the job. And so that rounded out my mm-hmm. my toolkit, if you will. So I now had leasing. And then with that, you know, had the opportunity after spending a number of years at Storage Tech to go over to to JD Edwards um, as their global leasing manager, so doing all their transactions around the world, and then became their head of real estate a few years later, taking over the entire organization. And just as I was kind of getting into my step, uh, PeopleSoft came along and acquired JD Edwards. And typically, what happens in a in a merger is you know the support organization of the smaller firm goes away very, right. very quietly. And, and the bigger firm consolidates it. And they asked me to stay on and run the the consolidated organization of PeopleSoft and, and JD Edwards. And so, you know, was able to do what I was doing at JD Edwards at a larger scale. And so it just allowed me to continue to, to build my trade. But it's been an interesting journey. And then and then from there, Oracle 
bought PeopleSoft. Right. And that was that was about a year and a half, 18 months of a very hostile uh, takeover that that I worked through. I remember saying, I'm never going back into corporate real estate. And uh, that's the time I jumped over to Trammell Crow to run all of their corporate accounts outside the US. And so they had American Express and EDS and a number of other accounts. And so I was managing their outsourced services for those corporate folks on that side of the fence. And that's when uh, Google called back the second time and the rest is history. And what was it like being on the Trammell Crow kind of services side of the business? And what did that bring to your new way of looking at things? Yeah, you know, it was in hindsight, it was uh, it was fascinating. One, just because I got to know a number of amazing people who, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, are now a, a big part of CBRE, very, very talented folks. But more importantly, really got to see how the service provider organizations worked, what drove their thinking, um, how they deconstructed, then reconstructed problems, how they hired, all those sorts of things. I think was was very, very critical to the scaling that we've been able to do at, at JDA versus at, at Google, just having that perspective. So it's been, uh, it was, it was a great stop in my career. Well, it, it matters just to kind of echo what you're saying there is if those people, if they're always those people and you were never one of them, then having a trust and understanding of how to partner would be much more limited than having had a stint on that side of the table. Yeah, no, it has. And it's and it's allowed us, I think, to create some very innovative structures with some of our service providers, because I know what's truly important to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I also know what's important to us. And we can find win-wins, I think, uh, more easily just having that that perspective. Mm-hmm. And it's inter- interesting because it fits the last question, always on leading voices, which is your advice to a young person getting into the business. And if it's a young person getting anywhere in the business, but particularly in corporate real estate, but what you said a minute ago was having had the breadth of experience and having done this, this, and this, then you get to pull it all together. Yeah, I would I would say, you know, to any young folks, and I've had the opportunity to go back to University of Denver's where I did my MBA and chat with both their undergraduate and graduate classes in corporate real estate. You know, one of the things I do say is, you know, don't be afraid to take horizontal moves early in your career. They can really pay off. So often we're so focused on that next promotion. And there's nothing wrong with that. If you if you really want to be a specialist in an area and you can advance through whatever those kind of ranks look like, that's wonderful. But you know, if you do want to be more of a general man- manager, which is what a corporate real estate executive ultimately is, those horizontal moves, I think, are so important. And they're easier to do when you're younger than older, I've always found. Yeah, the other thing on the horizontal moves is it gives you, lets you try out each different discipline to find the one, here's really where I can sing. And now you can bring them together yeah. later in your career, but people think they're going to be an X and they're going to wind up trying out a Y and it's a whole lot better for them. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's, it was not something I planned to do, but in hindsight, um, was such a, a valuable time in my career. Cool. Anything we haven't talked about that you want our listeners on our 100th episode to know and understand about what you guys get to do? Oh, boy, we could probably go on for hours yes. and hours. I just think the the future of work is uh, is so exciting. I think there is this acceleration. I don't think anything that is coming out of post-pandemic is new. It's just accelerated. And this convergence of the virtual and the digital world. I mean, I think the thing we all found working from home is the agency that everyone had on a screen. We all had the same block of tile, if you will. And so at home works really well. In the office works really well, 
and it's going to be creating that equity in this hybrid world. And I think the folks who get that right are going to be incredibly successful. And I think some people will uh, revert to old bad habits or and not be as successful. And so it's going to be a really, really fascinating time, I think. Yeah. Well, thank you, David. Uh, those are wonderful observations. I've enjoyed the conversation a lot. I really appreciate your being on Leading Voices, and I look forward to continuing our conversations. Thanks, Matt. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time. Music